Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit sugarhillchurch.com. Well, today we're continuing our series called Greater, and we're talking about this idea that in all of our lives there are moments, there are things, there are circumstances that we ask this question, is there anything greater? How many of you, by show of hands, have ever made a purchasing decision and you regretted it like a day or two later. Anybody have buyer's remorse? Anybody, anybody? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes that happens when you buy a new car. You're like, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And then you buy it. You're like, holy cow, what have I gotten into? Uh, for me, it's gadgets. Any gadget people in the house? Any nerdy like gadget folks? Yeah. So I buy into the marketing hype. I'm like, I'm watching the Apple keynotes when they're online. I'm watching it live. And they're like, in this phone, it's a millimeter thinner and it's you know an ounce lighter and and so I buy it by the end of the keynote I'm like I've gotta have that phone it would probably change my life pretty sad isn't it <laughs> it would change my life and then I buy that thing like a week later I've already dropped it cracked it I'm like yeah that was dumb have y'all had that moment is that just me you, you've had that moment so we have moments where we make a decision, then later we doubt it. I, I don't know if that was the best purchase. I don't know if that was the right house. I don't know if that's the right car. I don't know if I should have saved a little bit more. And we go through these moments, and sometimes they're small. Sometimes they're silly. Sometimes it's you sit down at a restaurant, and you're like, we made a horrible decision. I ate at a restaurant. My wife and I ate at a restaurant here in town like a year ago. We sat down. We saw some insect run across the table. It's like, this is a bad, bad decision. I'll tell you about it later, but uh, bad decision. Uh, I can't put it on the podcast. That'd be wrong, right? So, uh, so we have those moments. Sometimes they're little, but sometimes they're big. Sometimes they're big. This Wednesday, we're celebrating our third year wedding anniversary. I can't believe it. Can you believe it? She put up, yeah. She was in the first service. I would embarrass her now, make her turn red, but she was in the first service, so can't do that. But uh, we're, we're celebrating three years. And, and so when we got engaged, that was one of those moments in my life where we had been dating for a little over a year. We started sensing, hey, this is the one. We're meant to be together. And so I started saving, 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 saving. I went to buy the ring. And no guy knows anything about jewelry. We don't know anything about rings. But I do know Google.com. I do know that much. So I go to Google and I'm like, engagement ring. I find out that there are four C's. All the ladies will be able to tell us that it stands for cut, color, clarity. And what's the most one? Do you hear that? All the ladies are like, carrot. Yes. Yeah. So I learned about the four C's. I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to buy a ring and I'm going to wait till the right time. But once you buy the ring, you've already jumped over that hurdle of this is real and it's burning a hole in my pocket. So like a week later, I uh, proposed to her. And so we came to church that morning. She didn't know when it was happening. She thought it was going to be months later or whatever. And so we came to church. We went to lunch with her family. And then after lunch, we headed up to Lake Lanier Islands. We went to their little restaurant there to have dessert. And then we walked outside to the, uh, to the outdoors near the water. And so we're talking and I give her this gift. And then Diane Moffey, I saw her just a moment. Diane is in the woods taking pictures. She's like the, the engagement paparazzi that day. And so she's, she's hiding out. She's in the woods taking pictures from afar. And so finally it comes the time for the question. And so I get down on one knee and I pull out the ring. And in the middle of that moment, I'm like, holy cow. Because when she responded, it was sort of, she was caught off guard and sort of blubbery. And so I couldn't tell if that was a solid yes or not. <laughs> so I'm down on one knee thinking, she's crying. Is that a good cry or a bad cry? Right? 
And so finally, I, I feel like eternity on my knee wondering, have I made a mistake? Have I just messed up? Is this buyer's remorse? What is this? And so finally, I'm like, is that a yes? She's like, yes, it's a yes. And so I had to get confirmation. I had to get confirmation. Because sometimes our doubts are small. Sometimes they're big. And the truth is this morning, as we talk about greater, that some of us are in the middle of great doubt. We're in the middle of a moment in our life where it's much more, did I pick the right restaurant? It's much more, did I get the right car? It's much more, did she say yes or not? It is something that has caused you to be shaken at your core. It is doubt that causes you to question what is going on. And one of the things I love about the Bible is uh, the Bible records the good and bad in people's lives. The Bible doesn't just give us this rosy picture that everybody's perfect, everybody's great. Growing up near the, around the Bible, I thought, well, they're Bible people. They've got it together. They've got it great. But there is a guy in the Bible that we read. There's lots of guys in the Bible, but there is a guy that we'll read about this morning that has this major moment of doubt where he begins to question, has my life been wasted? And really, that's where some of us are living today. We're asking this question, is there any hope? Is there anything greater? Is there anything that, that is redemptive about my life? Because right now, what I'm feeling doesn't feel great. I mean, I, I've met enough people throughout the years here at Sugar Hill that I know that there's a lot of people that when you walk into this room, you walk in with that weight. Sometimes it's the death of a marriage where you thought everything's picture perfect, everything's great, that uh, th this is the one, and then years later you're just blindsided and you find out that this person's been unfaithful, this person's done something wrong, this person, and you have that crisis of doubt where you begin to second guess everything you've believed. Sometimes that happens in people's work lives where they sacrifice time with family, they sacrifice vacations, they, they sacrifice a whole lot to put in 60, 70, 80 hour weeks, hoping that they're working their way up the ladder, hoping that one day it's gonna pay off and then as they're working up that ladder, they find out that somebody else cut them off and somebody else took that spot that they hoped that they were gonna get. And now they've got doubt. What have I invested in? Has it been worth it? Sometimes it's medical. Sometimes it's medical where, where you're going along and everything seems great and then you receive an unexpected diagnosis and you think, man, what is the deal? It's doubt. It's doubt. It affects us physically. It affects us emotionally. It certainly affects us spiritually where I've met people that grew up around church or some, they, they had a moment of faith and somewhere along the way that doubt has shaken them to their core. And my question is, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Because in all of our lives, if you're not in that moment now, there is going to be a moment where you have great doubt. There is going to be a moment where you are shaken at your core. It is going to happen. And my point this morning is, is that there is one person that is greater than our doubt. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to look at the story with me. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, we read the story of a, an amazing individual. His name is John, and his nickname is John the Baptist. The reason why he got this nickname is because he baptized hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. Before John was born, God spoke to his family. God spoke to his mom and said, your boy is going to be different. Your boy is going to be somebody that prepares the way for the Messiah. 
Now, if you know anything about Old Testament history, all throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel goes through series of bondage and then they're free again. Bondage, then they're free again. And throughout all of their hundreds and thousands of years of history, there was a promise that one day God was going to send the Messiah, that God was going to send the deliverer, that God was going to send the Savior. And so for thousands of years, they've been waiting for that moment. And so an angel shows up and says to the mom of John, your boy is going to have a specific purpose. His one purpose is to prepare the way for Jesus. That's a big job, isn't it? That's a pretty incredible job description. So when John is born, he spends his life preaching one message. He goes around like this crazy guy saying, there's one thing that everybody needs to do. They need to repent and be saved. Why? Because Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior is coming. And so John spends his whole life preaching that one message. John spends 30-something years telling people that prepare your hearts, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so much so that by the time Jesus starts his public ministry, John stops in the middle of baptizing people. He looks over at Jesus himself and he says, behold, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his one message. Well, Luke chapter 7, he's now in a dungeon physically. In Luke chapter 7, he's ticked off the ruler of the land. In, John, in Luke chapter 7, he's called out the king and said, King, your life is sinful. You're in this, this toxic relationship with the wrong person. And so to shut him up, the king, the ruler, locks John up into this dungeon of a cell. And so in Luke chapter 7, when we read about John, he's days away from having his head cut off because of his faith. Can you imagine that? Here's a guy, before he's born, he's set apart to do one thing. He's set apart to tell people, get ready, the Messiah is coming. And now after preaching that message faithfully for dozens of years, now he's locked up in this jail cell. He's days away from going to the guillotine where they're chopping his head off. And in the middle of that moment, doubt begins to shoot up. Questions begin to pop in his mind. Questions of doubt where he begins to ask, is this the right thing? Here's what it says in Luke chapter 7. This is amazing. In verse 19, some of John's friends show up at the jail. Some of his friends are talking to him and and they're telling him about the work of Jesus. And listen to what he says. After preparing the way for Jesus, after preaching that one message, listen to what he says in verse 19. John sent them to the Lord, sent them to Jesus, asking this question. Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? Do you hear the doubt? He spent his whole life preaching that one message. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he comes, the Messiah, the anointed one. And now, days away from his death, he has this crisis of doubt where he asks this question, Jesus, are you really the one? Jesus, are you the guy? Jesus, are you the one that I said you are? Or have I wasted my life for the wrong person? He's shaken at his core. What happens in Luke chapter 7 is those guys that he asked that question to, they go to Jesus, they show up to Jesus, they say, Jesus, are you the one? 
What Jesus does is Jesus doesn't drop everything that he's doing and rush over to John's cell and say, John, let me pray for you. Let, let's sing a couple songs together. I've got three points in a poem. Write these down. These. Jesus doesn't do any of those things. Instead, what Jesus does is he says to those guys, go and tell John what you see and what you hear. See, this morning, there's a lot of us that are in that crisis of doubt. There's a number of us that are rattled at our core. And here's what I know about you, if it's true in my own life, is what gets us through doubt is not the way that we feel. In the moments of doubt, our emotions are all over the map. Our emotions are real, but they're not always right. And so in the middle of doubt, what's going to get us through that moment isn't some warm, fuzzy feeling. What gets us through seasons of doubt is knowing what we believe. And so here's what Jesus does. He says, tell them what you see and you hear. And when he does that, there's three truths that come right out of this passage. Truth number one, if you're taking notes, I'm going to invite you to write them down because they come right out of the story, right out of this passage, because we need to know what we believe. Point number one is that Jesus is the promised one. In this moment of doubt, in this moment of, has it all been a hoax? In this moment of, I don't really know if this has been real. In the middle of that moment, he asks this question, are you the expected one? And listen to Jesus' response. In verse 22, Jesus answered those friends of John. He answered them and he said, go and report to John what you've seen and what you've heard. He's like, you've seen it. You see what's going on. And listen to what he says. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus is saying, look, go back to John. Don't take him a little note card. Don't take him some little poem. Don't, don't give him a get well thing. Tell him what you've seen. Tell him what you've heard. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus do that? Well, all throughout the Old Testament, so more than half of your Bible is the Old Testament leading up to the life of Christ. And throughout that Old Testament, there are over 350 promises about signs when the Messiah would come. There's all of these promises. There's all of these prophecies that are uniquely filled, fulfilled by Jesus himself. And so here's what Jesus knows about John. Jesus knows that John is a good Jewish kid. So by the time he's seven years old, John would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. He would have had memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He would have known them by heart. By the time he's 14, he would have known the whole Old Testament by heart. And so he knows the stories. He knows the background. He knows the promises of what the Messiah would do. And so immediately when Jesus says, go and report what you see and what you hear, the, the, the blind receives sight, the, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. As soon as he hears those words, what Jesus is doing is he's saying to him, remember what the Old Testament said. Immediately when he heard those words, he would have been reminded of Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, where it quotes, the blind will receive sight when the Messiah comes. When he heard those words, he would have been reminded of Isaiah 61, verse 1, where it talks about when the Messiah, when the Savior, when, when the anointed one of God comes, the lepers will be cleansed, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised up. And so when John is in the dungeon, when, Don, when John is feeling doubt, Jesus says, look, the one that the Old Testament has been promising for thousands of years, I 
am the one. Do you see how powerful that is? What's going to get John through this dungeon in these last few days isn't the way that he feels, but what he believes, what he knows to be true about Jesus. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the one that can carry our burdens and he can break the, 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 the burden of sin in our life. He is the promised one. So John, in the middle of doubt, John, in the middle of, I'm not sure if this is working out, Jesus is saying, I am the guy. And so in all of our lives, there has to be a moment where we answer the question, who is Jesus to me? We've got to wrestle with that. At some point, we've got to wrestle with, is he just a teacher? Was he just a good guy? Was he just a philosopher? Or is he the promised one? We've got to answer that. See, a lot of times we call him by his full name and title. We call him Jesus Christ. I know that you know this, but Christ is not a last name. I know You know that, right? There wasn't Mary and Joseph Christ and the Christ family. They didn't have a mailbox. They said, the Christ live here. Well, that, that, that's not his last name. Jesus is his name and Christ is his title. Christ is his position. It's based off the Old Testament version of Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one that can break our burdens. He can carry our shame. He is the only one that can forgive our sins. He is the promised one. Through seasons of doubt, it's not what we feel, it's what we know. Number one, Jesus is the promised one. Then the second thing that John would have heard from Jesus that day is not only am I the promised one, but number two, the kingdom is progressing. The kingdom is progressing. John had been preaching that one message. Behold, the kingdom is coming. Behold, God is coming down to rule in a different way. But the problem for John is he had his preconceived notions of what that kingdom would look like. He thought, like a lot of people in his day, he thought, well, the ruling of Jesus on this earth is he's going to kick out everybody that's in government. He's going to sit on a physical throne. He's going to make all those wrong things right. He had an earthly perspective of the kingdom. And so when Jesus' ministry didn't reflect what he thought it should look like, he has this moment of doubt. So in the moment of doubt, here's what Jesus does. He tells him, this is what the kingdom looks like. Look at those verses again. Look back at the middle of verse 22 again. The blind receive sight. Jesus is saying, this is the activity of the kingdom. The lame walk, this is the activity of the kingdom. I'm not overthrowing some government. I'm not sitting on an earthly throne. I'm not running for some office. The lepers are cleansed. Those that are outcasts, they're cleansed. They're made whole again. The deaf, they hear. They couldn't hear, now they hear. The dead, they're raised up. The poor had the gospel preached to them. Every single one of those phrases, those are the verbs of the kingdom. Those are the actions of the kingdom. Jesus is saying to John, you had one perspective, but here's the true perspective. In the middle of the dungeon, here's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom is still moving forward. It's still progressing. still progressing. That's huge to remember because in seasons of doubt and the moments where we're locked up in the dungeon of doubt, we're in the middle of that moment and we get what I call tunnel vision. We get blinders on our eyes where no matter what's going on around us, no matter how many great things are happening at Sugar Hill Church, no matter how many people are giving their lives to Christ, no matter how many times we've seen God work, if we're not careful in seasons of doubt, we'll get so focused on that thing that is causing our doubt that will blind out everything else. We'll get so focused on it that that's the only thing that we see and we need to be reminded in the middle of that moment 
the kingdom is still moving forward. The kingdom's still moving forward. I've got some friends that right now they're on the slopes. They're snow skiing. Have y'all been snow skiing before? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody had an awkward moment when you're snow skiing? You know what I'm talking about? When you first learn to ski, you, you, you go down the bunny, tra- bunny hill trail, whatever it's called, a few times, and then you get on the lift, and the one big goal of the lift is, I don't want to fall flat on my face getting off this thing. I don't want to be that guy <laughs> that causes the pile up at the top. And then when you get off the lift, and hopefully you make it, but then after, after you finally get situated and you're about to go down your first hill, have you all ever had this experience where your head is saying, I'm going this way, but your skis say, we're going this way? <laughs> you're like, I, I want to go there, right? I, I want to be Mr. Cool. I want to have it together. But then, you're, then your skis are like, woo, we're going this way. Well, in some ways, that's the way our faith is at times. I know I believe. I know I put my trust. I know in my heart, he's the one, but my circumstances are pulling me this way. I've trusted him. I've seen him change my life, but my circumstances are making me feel. And what happens in the middle of doubt, we have that crisis of belief where we have to begin to go back to square root, to the base of it all and say, who do I know Jesus to be? Number one, that he's the promised one. Number two, his kingdom is progressing. And here's the last one. Number three, he is present in the middle of it. He's present. And so here's Jesus saying to John, John, the blind receive sight, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the, the lepers are cleansed, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then listen to verse 23, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. See, in seasons of doubt, when you're in a dungeon like John, when you're locked up in seasons of doubt, it is easy to blame God. It's easy to sort of shake our fists and say, well, God, if you had shown up and God, if you had answered that prayer and God, if you, and we go down this list and it's easy to blame God. And here's what Jesus is saying. I know I'm not in the jail cell physically with you. I know that you feel alone, but here's Jesus saying to John, you may feel alone, but you're not abandoned. And what I've learned in seasons of doubt is that instead of asking God, why did you let this happen? God, why am I here? Why is this unraveling? One of the things I've learned is instead of asking why, ask who. Who can I turn to? Who can I trust? Because Jesus says, don't be offended by me. I am here. And those of you that know my story know that this isn't just something I'm telling you. This is something I've walked through in my own life. And if we pass the microphone around this morning, there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of stories of people that have been in the dungeon of doubt. For me, it was like six and a half years ago. Six and a half years ago. My dad, 58 years old, six foot four, 250 pounds, strong guy, served in the military 37 years. Uh, six and a half years ago, has back pain, thinks it's nothing, thinks it's going to get better, doesn't get better, finally goes to the doctor, they finally do some tests, and they find that he's got this tumor clamped down on the base of his spine. Never been sick. Yearly physicals with the military. So I'm thinking, what are we going to do? So the doctor gives us this course of action. He's like, your dad's a big guy, he's a strong guy, uh, we'll, we'll be able to treat this stuff aggressively. My dad was all for it. He's like, do whatever you need to do. Do whatever you need to do. And so six and a half years ago in September, my dad 
had surgery to remove as much of the tumor as they could, and then he started the process of chemo and radiation and rehab. That tumor had clamped down so hard he had lost strength in his legs, and so he had to go straight from surgery to rehab, and he stayed in rehab from the middle of September to the middle of November, and finally he came home for the first time. At that time, I was in a season where I was traveling four days a week, five days a week on the road every single day in a different city telling youth pastors and youth volunteers, hey, sign up with what God's doing around the globe. So every night I'm standing up telling that. I asked my dad, should I come home? Do you want me closer? He's like, no, you're called to do that. You need to be out doing that. And so I'd go home, I'd go home, I'd visit on, on days off and all that kind of stuff. And then the week before Thanksgiving, he comes home for the very first time. So I fly home, I'm there for an early Thanksgiving meal, and then the next week he goes back in for his next round of chemo, radiation, rehab. About two weeks later, on December 3rd, I get a phone call from my mom, or like up in Pennsylvania someplace traveling, and my mom says, you need to come home. So through random events, I finally make it to the Memphis area and find out my dad's in ICU, and he's not really responsive. So we're praying, praying, praying. Doctors are like, it doesn't look good. I'm thinking in my heart, well, this is going to be great. God's going to answer this prayer. It's going to be one of those stories that's, you know, awesome. A few days later, we show up at the hospital, and, and he is alert. He's awake. He, he's got a tube in his mouth, so he can't talk, but he's writing down on a piece of paper, where's my wife, where's my son? So he's writing down our phone number. All this stuff, just miraculous change. I'm thinking, this is awesome. This is going to be great. And then about two or three days later, he bottoms out again. So all of December, we're basically at the hospital, hanging out in the waiting room, all through Christmas. And then early January, my mom's like, you haven't been home because I was living in North Georgia at the time. You haven't been home. You need to go take care of stuff. So I come home, and literally the night after I got home, I get a phone call at 9.30 at night in January, and my mom says he's gone. I'm thinking he's gone to a test. He's gone to something. And then it sinks in. He's gone. This was my, my dungeon of doubt. Weeks later, I'm back on the road telling youth pastors, volunteer youth workers, you need to sign up. God's doing a great work around the world. Inside of me, every darkness is rising up. Have you been there? Inside of me, I know one thing. I'm feeling something else. And the moment what got me through that wasn't how I felt. What got me through my doubt wasn't how I felt because I had some awful feelings going on inside of me. If you've been there, you know there are some awful feelings that shoot up inside of you. What got me through doubt wasn't my feelings. It was my theology, what I believe about God. And so this morning, (laughs) some of you are sitting right in the middle of that dungeon. And I felt compelled to tell you, he is the promised one. He is the promised one. He's the right guy. His kingdom, even though it feels like there's chaos in your life, his kingdom is progressing. He's still moving forward. And even though you feel alone, you're not abandoned, he is present with you. I mean, it didn't happen overnight for me. It wasn't, hey, one prayer and now I'm back and everything's great. What it took was a season of those truths, like waves rushing over the sands on the shore that truth just washing over my soul. He is the promised one. He is moving 
for. He is present. He is the Christ. He is the one that can take away your sin, your burden, your shame. He, he, he's still moving forward. The kingdom, I know it doesn't feel like it, but the kingdom's still moving forward and he is present. So this morning, maybe you need to know he is greater than doubt.